Good evening, everybody. Welcome back and welcome to episode number 249 of Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Tonight, uh, we are going to get well and truly mired in snow up in Karathras. And um, um, tonight is going to be a really fun opportunity because we get to see Tolkien kind of reimagining um, The Hobbit. I'm going to be thinking a lot about The Hobbit today uh, because, um, well, you'll see why. Um, and this is one of the uh, one of the one of the most interesting issues to me. Of course, the way in which he has to reimagine Gollum and the Ring from the first edition of The Hobbit, of course, uh, gets a lot of airtime, right? As far as thinking of you know Tolkien's process and his imagination and everything, that's a really high-profile way in which the Lord of the Rings has to kind of deal with the you know the Hobbit as he originally wrote it. Um. Tonight, we are going to look at the passage, which is for me at really the epicenter of Tolkien dealing with uh, a far less high profile issue uh, in The Hobbit and everything. So um, anyway, that um, that is that is what we're going to be looking at today. Before we do, though, I wanted to um, just invite everybody to join us at Ozmoot next month. So our regional moots are starting up again with a bang. Our first ever Southern Hemisphere uh, uh, moot. I'm going to Australia. I can't wait for the trip to Australia. It's going to be so much fun. Um, uh, so really, really looking forward to getting down there and connecting with folks. There's so many folks that I'm going to get to meet uh, there. I'm going to get to meet Jenny Aldred, who's, uh, you know, uh, uh, heading up our volunteers for the Lord of the Rings, the Exploring the Lord of the Rings online project. I'm going to get to meet Philip Menzies, uh, who has been our composer for film film for, for many, many years now. Uh, oh man, it's going to be great. Not to mention, uh, uh, Ilana, who is our host, um, uh, there at the University of Queensland. It's going to be great. Um, so really looking forward to being able to, to visit Australia for the first time and to, uh, and to see folks um, down there. I also got to tell you, now I know that many of you will not be able to make it to Ozmoot as it's pretty far away. It is uh, by far the most remote moot from any, uh, uh, you know, from our, our primary base of operations uh, here in, in sunny New Hampshire. Um, that we've ever had. Uh, so I know that many, again, it's, it's not exactly convenient for most of you. I understand that. However, like all of our moots, we're going to be uh, broadcasting Ozmoot. Um, uh, you know, it'll be a fully hybrid moot. Um, but unlike any of our other regional moots, it's actually going to be a multi-day moot. Um, since this is our first ever South America moot, they pulled out all the stops and it's going to be like a like a two and a half day moot. Um, we're going to we're going to have sessions on Friday, Saturday and Sunday of that weekend. Um, it is by far the biggest, most packed program we've ever had at a regional moot. Um, so I, this is going to be this is going to be uh, going to be great fun, which means, by the way, uh, that you get like three times the bang for your uh, for your your digital moot buck uh, with Ozmoot that you've gotten for any other moot so far. And like our other regional moots, um, everything it's, it's all going to be recorded. So if you sign up for Ozmoot, um, even if you can't attend, because you may be thinking, well, the time zone shift is going to be a little bit odd and truly it will. Uh, the sessions will be back here in America. The sessions will be happening on Saturday, Sunday and Monday. Uh, no, wait, the other way around. 
Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Um, see, I can't even keep straight which direction the days are moving. It's all very confusing. Um, but um, uh, in any case, uh, it's... Um, uh, and, and, you know, in addition to the shift in days, it's going to be, a, you know, a, a, a shift to probably for many of you an unusual time of the day or night. However, as I say, um, like all of our regional moots, we're going to be recording um, the we're, we're going to be recording the whole thing. Um, and so as a consequence, you'll be able to get if you sign up for the digital moot, you'll be able to get access, full access to the recordings, so you can. Even if you can't participate live, you can still uh, uh, see it in, uh, you know, at other times and in other ways. So um, anyway, that is, uh, yes, the Aussies live in the future. That's right. That's right. It will be it will be it will be backwards uh, the other way. So anyhow, uh, I just wanted to recommend to you, uh, you can sign up still uh, either to attend in person if you are. Uh, fortunate enough to be nearby, or you can uh, join us remotely and vicariously enjoy a summer weekend with us down in Australia uh, at the end of at the end of January here. Um, exactly, I know that uh, uh, Jenny and and others, other uh, uh, Native Australians. Um, uh, are thinking that an unusual time of the day or night, uh, she says, welcome to my world. Exactly. Yes. The, uh, the shoe will be on the other foot here. I know, uh, for, uh, for the first time. Um, so, um, anyhow, we will see what happens. The times, the time difference I know from, uh, where I am in the East coast of America to, uh, Brisbane is 15 hours. Um, so it's not a, that's, it could be worse. <laughs> it could be worse than that. Um, but um, but we'll see. It, it, it does mean that, um, you know, we're going to be having some sessions in what will be the middle of the night here in America. Um, but of course, I call that a very sensible time, uh, even when I'm here. So we'll see about that. Um, but um, anyway, that is uh, uh, that is. The big thing that is that is coming up here, as I say, it's and it's it is going to be the beginning of our spring moot season. Now there are some moots that are still um, in process of being confirmed. Um, we have a few that are definite, a few that are close, um, including potentially some new ones. Like we're we're I'm hoping that we are in fact going to get to the Pacific Northwest this year. I am also hoping that we're going to get to Europe, though I don't know exactly about the time of that. Uh, we're still looking at the potential of uh, Scandinavia. Um, so, uh, we'll, again, I will I will give you more details as we confirm those things. But I've been hearing, and also uh, Toronto as well. So we're looking at Canada, we're looking at Europe, we're looking at the Pacific Northwest, as well as definitely Sunshine Moot uh, in Orlando, Florida. The uh, in fact. Registration for Sunshine Moot is already open. Um, uh, almost certainly Tex Moot, um, which we're still looking at San Antonio for Tex Moot. Um, anyway, so uh, uh, lots of Moot activity uh, still to come and to be announced for the spring. Um, but as I say, that, that officially starts at the end of January. So I uh, wanted to make sure uh, that you guys knew if you look at uh, the Signum website, look under our events, uh, you will see that uh, we have the full schedule for Osmoot posted. So you can see all the 
really fun presentations and discussions uh, that we're going to be having uh, down there. So, all right. Um, with that said, let's uh, let's get back to our text discussion here. So, okay, um, we were looking at. Boromir being diplomatic again last time. He has not yet started to complain. Um, and then we were looking at them making their way up the mountain after that. Um, now we get the description as things go from bad to worse. While they were halted, the wind died down and the snow slackened until it almost ceased. They tramped on again, but they had not gone more than a furlong when the storm returned with fresh fury. The wind whistled, and the snow became a blinding blizzard. Soon even Boromir found it hard to keep going. The hobbits, bent nearly double, toiled along behind the taller folk, but it was plain that they could not go much further if the snow continued. Frodo's feet felt like lead. Pippin was dragging behind. Even Gimli, as stout as any dwarf could be, was grumbling as he trudged. The company halted suddenly, as if they had come to an agreement without any words being spoken. They heard eerie noises in the darkness round them. It may have been only a trick of the wind in the cracks and gullies of the rocky wall, but the sounds were those of shrill cries and the wild howls of laughter. Stones began to fall from the mountainside, whistling over their heads or crashing on the path beside them. Every now and again they heard a dull rumble as a great boulder rolled down from hidden heights above. Okay, I wanted to. Uh, oh, yeah, so a furlong. A furlong is an uh, is an eighth of a mile. Very useful measure. Um, uh, <laughs> in when I was in uh, uh, in physics classes in college, um, we used to we used to joke about converting uh, velocity measurements into furlongs per fortnight uh, as the uh, uh, sort of maximally abstruse measure of uh, of velocity. Um, but um, I want to come back up to that first paragraph, which has a lot of interesting features, but I want to start um, with what I was kind of pointing to at the very beginning. Um, that is the relationship to the Hobbit. And you guys see, see the connection, right? You see what is being described here and what this sounds very much like. It may have been only a trick of the wind in the cracks and gullies of the rocky wall, but the sounds were those of shrill cries and wild howls of laughter. Stones began to fall from the mountainside, whistling over their heads or crashing on the path beside them. Every now and again, they heard a dull rumble as a great boulder rolled down from the hidden heights above. Um, now, no one expresses the explicit fear that someone is going to be picked up and uh, kicked sky high for a football. Exactly, as JJ says, no mention of footballs. Exactly. Um, but we should certainly be remembering uh, the Stone Giants passage. Now, let me, um, let me pull up the Hobbit here. I meant to make a slide of this, but as I was just saying right before class, I was uh, on picking up children duty and didn't get a chance to prep that slide before class here. Um, so let me just pull up my e-text on the screen. Give me one moment here. Um, Okay, so we're at the beginning of chapter four of The Hobbit. I'm, I'm gonna, I'll make it bigger here in a moment. Expand my text so that we can actually see it. Okay. Um, all right, so we're at the beginning of chapter four. And as we head up into the mountains, 
There we go. There's a being kicked high, sky high for a football. So we've got the two... The, the First, there's the description of the thunder battle. Now, we're not getting a thunder battle, right? Um, but look at how he describes it here. Bilbo had never seen or imagined anything of the kind. They were high up in a narrow place, with a dreadful fall into a dim valley at one side of them. So you see, even the physical circumstances are quite like what is being described here. A wall on one side and a steep drop on the other side. There, there they were sheltering under a hanging rock for the night, and he lay beneath a blanket and shook from head to toe. When he peeped out in the lightning flashes, he saw that across the valley the stone giants were out, and were hurling rocks at one another for a game, and catching them, and tossing them down into the darkness where they smashed among the trees far below, or splintered into little bits with a bang. Then came a wind and a rain, and the wind whipped the rain and the hail about in every direction, so that an overhanging rock was no protection at all. Uh, Bilbo seems to share Sam's assessment, which he is about to give on the next slide, uh, of uh, calling a lone cliff wall next to you shelter. Soon they were getting drenched, and their ponies were standing with their heads down and their tails between their legs, and some of them were whinnying with fright. They could hear the giants guffawing and shouting all over the mountainsides. This won't do at all, said Thorin. If we don't get blown off or drowned or struck by lightning, we shall be picked up by some giant and kicked sky high for a football. Um, okay, and here's, of course, the illustration of the mountain path there, which I imagine is a similar thing. I love the little face in the mountain down here kind of think that's purposeful. Uh, I mean, it's kind of subtle, but I always kind of thought that was purposeful. Um, Gandalf, of course, is far from happy about the giants himself, right? And then they go, and this is when they find the cave, right? Um, okay, now, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't think that officially counts as like an extra slide, but... So I just wanted to kind of recall how he... First of all, just how... Um, how straightforward he is, right? Bilbo looks out and he's like, oh, the stone giants are out, right? And they're throwing rocks all over the place. Um, and some of the rocks are are falling down among them, right? And it's kind of scary. Um, again, look at the description here. The company halted suddenly as if they had come to an agreement without any words being spoken. They heard eerie noises in the darkness around them. It may have only been a trick of the wind in the cracks and gullies of the rocky wall, but the sounds were those of shrill voices, or shrill cries, and wild howls of laughter. Stones began to fall from the mountainside, whistling over their heads, or crashing on the path beside them. Every now and again, they heard a dull rumble as a great boulder rolled down from hidden heights above. Now, um, um, interesting, yeah. Vardendil says that uh, the chapter title of that chapter, Overhill and Underhill, is echoed in the line Up, Down, Underhill, describing Tom Bombadil's house. So now we can roll backwards in The Lord of the Rings as well. Yeah, let's not go back and talk about that. But yes, it does recall that, doesn't it? Um, now, Mad Violinist, I agree, this is a much more indirect and thus eerier way of describing the noises. Yes. Um, in The Hobbit, and of course, as often, though not always in The Hobbit, um, we get the terror of a terrifying moment um, at least slightly diverted with humor. I mean, there's 
nothing particularly and intrinsically humorous of saying, well, the stone giants are out, right, when you're wandering in the mountains. Um, but of course, the way that the stone giants are described as playing their game, um, throwing the boulders back and forth and catching them and sometimes hitting, uh, you know, uh, the boulders colliding in the air and shattering into pieces, contextualizing it as a game, which is still dangerous, right? Which, even perhaps by mistake, one of the dwarves might be mistaken for a football, um, which almost certainly means rugby, by the way, not soccer. He's not thinking of what we in America would call soccer. Um, Tolkien was, of course, a, uh, uh, a, an accomplished rugby player. Um, and that image of uh, taking the ball and kicking it sky high, uh, th- I know that that can and does happen, uh, you know, by goalies, say, in, in soccer, but is more characteristic of rugby anyway. Um, but uh, anyhow, okay, so we don't get the comedy, right? We don't get the game playing, right? Um, instead, he, we also... Um, we also don't get um, any attribution to giants. Notice what we get instead. What we get instead is an offering of a natural explanation, right? It may have been only a trick of the wind in the cracks and gullies of the rocky wall. We can't rule that out. It sounds as if the sounds were those of shrill cries. That's what it sounds like. I'm not saying it is, right? But there were sounds that were like shrill cries and wild howls of laughter. And he doesn't say anything about the stones. That is, we don't get any indication that the stones are being thrown at them by, you know, a person or persons unknown. Um, You know, there's... And so, again, in that sense, it's all potentially much more tame than we get in The Hobbit. But this moment, as I say, this is one of the moments where we see him most pointedly re-envisioning something. This is, um, this is obviously the stone giants at work, right? I mean, it's the, the, the parallel, I think, is very clear. And, of course, the stone giants' passage in The Hobbit is very conspicuous. It's a minor thing. Like I said, it doesn't even... It's not even in the same zip code as the, you know, the Gollum reimagining that we get as far as its significance to the story and its its longstanding impact uh, on the Lord of the Rings moving forward. But um, but it's uh, it's still one of them. There are very few things that Tolkien kind of takes back. From the Hobbit, well, maybe not so few. I mean, we can come up with more. We don't get any skin changers like Bjorn in The Lord of the Rings either. So if we actually sat down to it, there are probably a number of things that we see in The Hobbit that we don't really get um, in The Lord of the Rings anymore. But it isn't all that many. Many of the, Some of them have been altered, right? Like the spiders of Mirkwood, um, who are less chatty, Right in the Lord of the Rings, um, she loved a little bit less chatty uh, than the um, uh, than, than the spiders in Mirkwood. Um, but um, uh, 
Anyway, yeah, <laughs> Trifle says no skin changers was one of uh, was one of only two complaints I had when I finished the Lord of the Rings for the first time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, anyway, so yeah, you can see like you know the depiction of the wargs. When we get wargs, you know they're going to be different. The eagles have changed. So there are lots of places where you can point to how things that he has incorporated that he had in the Hobbit have undergone. Undergone some change, right? They've they've kind of grown up a little bit, um, and the main thing. I mean, I've said this many times in the past, but this is something that is really clear to me from reading the history of Middle Earth in general, not just the um, the history of the Lord of the Rings section, but the whole history of Middle Earth is that as much very appropriate credit as Tolkien gets for being a massive, a massively detailed, you know, a master world builder. World building was a, a, a new hobby of his starting at about this time. Um, that was not something that his earlier work is at all noticeable for. Um, it was not world building. It was myth writing. Um, you know, it was myth making that was driving his early writings, and even The Hobbit, to some extent, um, is sort of wildly, wildly at times, for Tolkien wildly, still not wild compared to, say, C.S. Lewis, right, who just has, like, the mythological fiesta going on in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, which seems to have kind of driven Tolkien crazy. Um, uh, but still, from, by Tolkien's standards, The Hobbit is... Um, a, 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 okay, if it's not truly wild, it's, um, um, yeah, it's not a wild rumpus of mythology. It's more, uh, a, a sort of disorderly block party, I guess, of, uh, of, um, of, of, of mythology. But, but there's some pretty, uh, cheekily jostling elements, uh, in, um, in, in The Hobbit. And not really very much in the way of solid attempt to really make them work together. Um, he, uh, I mean, they, he didn't like contradictions. So, I mean, he's not just, again, he's not just kind of throwing stuff together with the wild abandon. Again, like C.S. Lewis, right? I mean, come on. Like, Greek, fawn. I mean, in one, like, in, like, the space of a couple chapters, right, we get a Greek fawn, a Norse dwarf, and a and Santa Claus, right? All, all in one place. I mean, gah, right? But the Hobbit is, like, close, right? We've got the dwarf, you know, we've got the dwarves from the uh, the Norse Eddas. We've got uh, the, you know, the, the cup thief and dragon from Beowulf. And then we've got, you know, a, a, a sort of a Rent-a-Silmaril and uh, the, you know, the, uh, you know, poor man's Doriath and, you know, all, you know, this, all this other stuff that he's recycling from his own, um, uh, from his own mythology. It's the, it's the most, the Hobbit, I think, is the most, um, uh, frisky <laughs> Tolkien gets <laughs> with his uh, with his mythology. Yes, and the Christmas elf, the Christmas elf, almost Elrond. Yes, exactly. Um, 
so so yeah, I, I mean it's 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 uh, it. But again, his goal, you know, his primary goal was certainly not like. I'm going to create a secondary world that will draw in my readers and make them invest, you know, uh, secondary belief throughout. Um, though even there, we see him drifting in that direction. Um, and it really comes in, it's one of the things that becomes noticeable, I think, um, more noticeable when we get up to the great moment of shift in The Hobbit. Uh, and the great moment of shift happens when Thorin comes out of the barrel. Right when Thorin emerges from his barrel and then goes into Lake Town and says, "I am Thorin, son of Thran, son of Thror, king under the mountain. I return." Um, that's when the Hobbit changes tone and really becomes a very different story uh, than it was before that. And that's, of course, also not coincidentally where he picked it up after leaving it, you know, putting it aside for uh, apparently some time. Um, but. Um, yeah, Mad Violinist says, I now want an image of Elrond laying a finger aside of his nose. Yes, I'm not actually saying that Elrond is Santa Claus. I, I don't, I, you know, again, he, Tolkien does not insert Santa Claus into his uh, story. But, um, uh, but anyway, there's Elrond, who's kind as Christmas, in any case. Um, but, uh, anyway, okay, okay. So, um, so, the point is, which I'm strongly digressing from here, uh, the point is is that world building, like just putting together a secondary world that we could invest secondary belief in, was not his top priority. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying he didn't think about it at all, that there's no, you know, there, there's no sense in which The Hobbit works that way at all. I'm just saying it was not his number one priority, and that seems pretty demonstrable when you read The Hobbit. That is one of the chief differences. Yes, there's a... He's writing sort of for a more mature audience. He, As he described it himself, he described it as his primary audience was his kids, and his kids were growing up. I mean, I there's, I think there's more. I think that's not the only reason uh, to explain sort of the shift in tone uh, in The Lord of the Rings. But still, um, you know, that's no doubt a factor. But yet I don't think that the mere growing up of the story explains the shift in tone that we see. You know, all the changes that he makes. When we go back, when we see him sort of bringing in elements from The Hobbit or paralleling elements from The Hobbit... Um, the ways in which he alters them, or in some rare cases, just quietly drops them completely. Um, the change that I see is not, in my mind, predominantly a, oh, this is now more mature, and for a more mature audience. Again, I'm not saying it's not, but I'm, I don't think that's the primary pattern that I see when I compare and contrast how he handles some of these elements in The Hobbit and how he handles some of those same elements when they come up in The Lord of the Rings. To me, the biggest difference is this world-building thing, that now he, he really is working to build a story which, in which we can invest secondary belief. He has now taken up this new hobby of world-building, uh, and of really developing this out and, and is asking himself those kinds of... He is entering into this imaginative world now more even than he ever had with his Silmarillion material, as we'll see. Um, you know, as we can see in the nature of Middle-earth, when he comes back to the Silmarillion materials at the end and says, okay, I want to redo the Silmarillion that way. 
I want to make it the kind, I want to make it, I want to make these stories, stories that people can invest that same kind of secondary belief in that they could in the Lord of the Rings. And that's how he gets enmeshed in, the, you know, the, ne- the next thing you know, you're doing uh, page upon page upon page of elvish reproductive calculations and all that kind of thing. Not to mention dancing bears, toddlers. He does keep the dancing bears, right? Um, the dancing, Bjorn's dancing bears uh, are not cut. They're just moved. Um, they're made legendary. And I don't mean to say that they didn't happen. I mean, they're ma- I mean everything about Numenor is legendary, right? Um, so he, he kind of distances them from the present. We don't come across troops of dancing bears uh, in the Lord of the Rings, but he hasn't forsworn the dancing bears. And actually, the dancing bears are a great example. Just because something doesn't happen from the... Like, if he redoes a Hobbit thing, uh, or rather, if he doesn't redo a Hobbit thing, right? If he um, if he sort of removes from the Lord of the Rings, or, or rather, let me say this differently. If there is in the Lord of the Rings no evidence of a thing that was in the Hobbit, you know, where he seems to have kind of drawn a curtain of silence over that or something. And you could say that Bjorn the Skin Changer and his friends, the Dancing Bears, who come and dance their long, slow, shambling dances every evening, apparently. You know, it's like dance party at Bjorn's house every single night. Um, The bears, you know, of the Anduin uh, uh, Valley obviously know how to live, right? Uh, It's just a continuous, ongoing dance party there. Um... Uh, we don't get anything like that, right? So you might think, right, if you just read The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, you might say, like, oh, well, okay, we're serious now in The Lord of the Rings, right? So the dancing bears, that was, like, a little bit scary. I mean, Bjorn's whole point was, like, don't go out, or, like, the dancing bears are going to rip you to shreds, right? It's not safe to go out among the dancing bears. Um, However, uh, the... um, However, the it turns out that he does not abandon that idea at all. Um, in fact, that was just the most delightful thing about that quite delightful chapter in um, uh, in the nature of Middle Earth that we see he keeps the dancing bears, but he relocates them, and he relocates them in a way that seems to me calculated to be more congenial to secondary belief. If we were to meet a troop of dancing bears in the if we were just to happen across that, right, somewhere on the way to or from the, you know, the, the, the uh, Mount Doom, right, from, from the Fiery Mountain, um, it would be odd, um, and it might kind of take us out of things. It seems that it's... It's bizarre. It's strange. It's even funny. Um, Though, of course, remember the fact that you mustn't laugh at the dancing bears. He keeps this part of the story, right? Because he realizes that it's funny, but he doesn't want it to be funny, right? He's, in fact, he scolds you indirectly if you're tempted to, if you're laughing at the dancing bears, you get a dressing down from the narrator who says that they can, the bears cannot abide the sound of human laughter. And so if you're laughing, you're doing it wrong, okay? The spe- you would be a, a terrible spectator, and you would never get an invite back to see the dancing bears again um, 
In fact, they might turn and rend you uh, if they heard you laughing. Like, which may be, may be the explanation for why uh, Bjorn says not to come out, right? Because if they came outside, they might have laughed, and if they'd laughed, the bears would have eaten them on the spot, right? Um, but um, uh, anyway, anyway, okay, so yeah. Anyway, all right, since I'm talking about the dancing bears, to finish that up. So he removes it to Numenor. He makes it distant from the present. He puts it in the context of the legendary past, because everything about Numenor is legendary, right? Um, he makes it part of the legendary past, makes it not only a temporal distance, but a physical distance removed from the kind of current experience of the story, right? But in his imagination, it's still there, right? It's still there. Anyhow, okay. So... This was a very long-winded way of saying, although he, by, in, by bringing the elements from The Hobbit, most of the elements from The Hobbit, into the world of The Lord of the Rings, he naturalizes them fairly well there, right? He, he kind of makes them fit. We will see the wolves pretty soon. The, the wargs, which are the sort of the equivalent um, of the, uh, the wolves that we, you know, the wargs that we meet in The Hobbit, we're going to encounter them before too long. Um, we will see, um, again, most of the things that we see there. But the stone giants, the stone giants are just gone. But this paragraph remembers them. This paragraph clearly remembers the stone giants. And so look at how he is handling the parallel passage. Um, they heard eerie noises in the darkness round them. None of them, not even Gandalf or Gimli, who would contain a second-hand memory, right, of the stone giants in the mountain, or Gandalf, who would contain a first-hand memory, um, or Frodo, who has heard the story from Bilbo, no doubt many times, right, and presumably Sam, who might have listened to it even more often than Frodo. Um, but um, <laughs> sorry, I missed this question. Uh, Karina Lars' daughter asks, uh, "What if you laughed for joy to see the bears? Would they know the difference?" Uh, Karina, I like to think that they would know the difference between a laughter of joy and delight uh, and a laughter uh, of derision. Um, I certainly personally hope that they would, uh, as somebody who indulges in laughs of joy and delight quite frequently. Many, many things make me laugh. Um, uh, many things which other people um, sometimes react strangely to when I laugh. Um, sometimes I've accidentally offended people by bursting into laughter. Um, when people assume that laughter means derision uh, and not mere delight at what's happening. Um, but uh, so I certainly hope that the bears of Numenor would be able to discern the difference in the sound of the laughter of derision and the laughter of delight. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, I would hope so. Yeah, Tom Bombadil would laugh as well. I, that's one of the elements of Tom's character. I, uh, um, I uh, relate to, I think, most uh, most clearly. Um, but, um, 
Yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, all right. Nobody, despite the context they have from The Hobbit, nobody hears the eerie noises in the darkness around them and says, oh, it's the stone giants again. Now, here's one of the other reasons why this is particularly conspicuous. It's not only because we have this parallel passage from The Hobbit, where they're in not exactly the same place, it's not the same pass, they're much further south here, um, uh, near Carothros and the, you know, the Red Horn Gate, and not up at the High Pass, which is where the stone giants were at play back in The Hobbit. But it's, again, even the description, as I was suggesting, uh, is parallel there. And that illustration from The Hobbit could you know, serve almost uh, to illustrate this moment here as well. Um, but it's so it's not just that there is a parallel passage. It's also the very interesting fact that giants are a very conspicuous absence from Middle Earth in general. Very conspicuous. Um, they're very conspicuous because giants are a particularly prevalent theme in exactly the kind of fairy tale that Tolkien loved most. Um, Jack the Giant Killer is one of the classic, paradigmatic English fairy tales, um, which Tolkien himself talks about it quite a bit. It is clear that giants are a very um, a very important element, a very a very prominent element. Uh, of all of the <laughs> sort of a strange sentence to say, um, but of all of the creatures that do not appear in Middle Earth, giants are at the top of the list of puzzling omissions. Like I'm not shocked that there aren't unicorns in Middle Earth. I'm not shocked that there aren't griffins in Middle Earth. I'm not, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of things that you might see or expect to find. Um, I'm not surprised that there aren't centaurs in Middle Earth, right? I mean, there, there's there's a lot of uh, sort of popular fantasy creatures, right, that don't make it into Middle Earth, um, but of all of those creatures. Giants are the most surprising, the most surprising to me. Um, and of course, this is made more conspicuous by the fact that Tolkien flirts with giants on numerous occasions, right? Numerous occasions. Uh, don't trolls kind of count as giants? No, not really. Not really. Um, trolls are um, uh, trolls are quite different. Um and I say they're quite different. I mean, you could say, like, well, they're very big and also associated with, you know, stones and that kind of thing. It's like turning into stone and such. Um, and so they're, you know, they're giant-ish in the sense that they're large. But um, uh, but, uh, but, but no, there's um, the stories about trolls. Uh, especially in the Norse tradition, are are different from stories about giants. Um, uh, so uh, so yeah, I, I, giants I, giants are not quite the same as trolls. Um, trolls have a sort of a different kind of fairy tale pedigree, 
if, if you see what I mean by that. Um, it's like Tolkien went to include giants in Middle-earth on a bunch of different occasions. He put him into The Hobbit, but then he didn't like him. He took him out. We see him. Here, here they are, being at least sort of implicitly taken out. Um, you've got the giants that Sam refers to, right? Um, these tree men. And by tree men, he seems literally just to mean men who are as tall as trees. Giants, right? So yeah, he's telling giant stories. And Sam starts off by telling stories about giants, rep reported sightings of giants, for the very good reason that at the beginning, Tolkien was planning to put a giant there near the Shire. Um, that was the original plan for where Gandalf was. He knew he wanted to get Gandalf out of the picture for a little bit, and so that he knew he had to contrive to keep Gandalf away somehow. So before the idea of the treason of Isengard uh, came to him, his original plan was that there would be an evil giant who would imprison Gandalf in a tower. So Frodo's vision of the tower by the sea um, was originally the vision of Gandalf's imprisonment um, in the tower by the sea. And it was the giant, uh, the giant, the evil giant who was capturing him. And of course, I know that many of you know the name of course, the intended name of that original malignant giant who would have captured and held Gandalf prisoner, Treebeard. Yeah, Treebeard was going to be his name. Because um, uh, it's a good name for a giant who's as tall as a tree. Um, well, of course, he changes his mind about that, right? The ringwraiths get developed in the picture, um, and then Saruman, of course, the treason of Isengard, comes into the picture, and so we don't need Treebeard the giant anymore, so he gets cut. Sam's reference to the rumors of giants in the North Farthing remain, but there's no longer an actual giant lying behind it anymore. But then, of course, again, as many of you know, especially if you did the treason of Isengard um, uh, discussion with me in the Mythgard Academy. Um, you will remember that when he gets down to Fangorn, he's going to have another go, right? And so he brings Giant Treebeard back. Having cut out Giant Treebeard um, up in the north, he's going to bring Giant Treebeard back on Giant Treebeard's home ground down here in the forest of Fangorn, uh, and Frodo is going to meet uh, the evil Giant Treebeard, um, who's going to be really scary. And then, of course... He uh, becomes an ent, rather unexpectedly to everyone involved, and then the Treebeard chapter writes itself in one draft, and there you go. Virtually one draft. Um, and thus, giants, once again, included in the story and then cut from the story, and never really come back again. Um, there was the possibility—yeah, I mean, there was— there. And if you look back further, even back in the old days of his old legendarium, like back in Book of Lost Tales days, there was a reference to a giant in Middle-earth. Um, there is a noticeable giant listed in the uh, list of magical things that Luthien invokes 
in the chant where she's growing her hair out, right? So as she's singing the song to grow out her hair as she's escaping from prison uh, in the tale of Tenuvio back in the Book of Lost Tales, there's this list of, um, like, extreme things, right? She's growing... she's going for extreme hair growth. And so she invokes the extreme hair growth in the name of uh, other extreme things, the tallest of all things, the longest of all things, and all that kind of thing. Um, and there's a giant. There's a famously tall giant that she names there. And so that, that implies that in some vague sense, Tolkien had been kind of planning, assuming that giants would be a part of the, you know, the tapestry of Middle-earth. But they just seem never to stick. They never to stick. He never, um, he never grows, he never, he never really goes there, right? He never goes, um, and writes a full story involving giants. Um, he almost does twice, as I say, here in The Lord of the Rings, but then he never does. So, the omission of the stone giants from this passage. Back to our passage here today in the Lord of the Rings. And I, sorry for the long digress. We're doing much more digression than close reading today. But uh, but it's what I wanted to do. Um, it's worth, I think, just pausing to notice. Because what we're doing essentially is a close reading first of what is not there. <laughs> right? Um, a... Uh, uh, yes, a close reading of what wasn't there. Um, and so now let's look at what is there. With sort of all of this in mind, um, the conspicuous absence of giants is really, really interesting because it seems like there should be giants in Middle-earth. It really does. Um, they're exactly the kind of thing one might expect to find. Um, he would have to put them in the music. Yeah, Abelard, but he, like... He worked that out for bunches of other things, right? I mean, he managed to retcon dwarves, ants, eagles, even in a sense, dragons. Um, I mean, like he made that all work within the, uh, you know, the music of the Ainur schema that he had worked out. I feel confident he could, trolls, orcs, you know, all of those creatures, well, orcs, less perfectly, of course, than everything else, but, um, but still, like, he, uh, I think he could have, I think he could have handled it. I, I, I think he could have worked that out. Um, but, um, uh, they could have been really big men. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even just to have them be, uh, a subspecies. I mean, he already has two conspicuous subspecies of humans, right? Um, one in the Druidan, Khan Buri Khan, uh, and his, folks who are not normal humans, who are not just like, you know, sort of strange humans. I mean, they are in one sense, but they're, they're more different than merely being a slightly different shape and speaking funny, right? Um, there is, and then of course the hobbits themselves being the biggest example of uh, what seems clearly to be a subspecies of human. And you've got to think, if there are strangely, functionally, inexplicably, very unusually small humans, um, some of whom don't get taller than two feet high, he says, um, then uh, why not? 
why not a species of a subspecies of humans that gets to be 15 feet tall right like how how is that more weird uh like ontologically speaking than hobbits you know than a species of humans two feet tall um so um anyway okay back to our passage The noises they hear are eerie noises. And then we get the narrator's... Um, then they get the... We, we get the narrator's um, hedging, right? His offering of a natural explanation. It may only... It may have been only a trick of the wind in the cracks and gullies of the rocky wall. Why do you think that's there? What is the function of that statement, do you think? There are a couple of reasons to say things like this. One is if you are reporting something like this is on the one hand, this might be in the same category as the um, it is said that that we get sometimes. Right. I'm not saying this is true. I'm just saying that some people say that this is true. Right. When the narrator kind of. Uh, uh, steps back and, and assumes a certain amount of plausible deniability about the statement that he, that he seems to be making, right? To some extent, it kind of sounds like that. It might be that sort of thing here. Um, why do you think he would want plausible deniability uh, in that case, though, right? Um, in this case, I mean. Does he think that the audience won't accept it? Is that is that sort of the issue here? That the narrator is sort of assuming that now from within this framework, that is the the Lord of the Rings framework, as opposed to the Hobbit framework. If he just up and says like the Hobbit narrator up and says that oh yeah, so there are a bunch of stone giants there and they were throwing boulders around, you know, like they do, right? I mean, if he just said something like that, does he think he's going to lose the readers? Does he think that's too much of a of a of a strain for the secondary belief of Lord of the Rings readers? Um, he gives us an out. We can choose if we want. We can choose to believe that there isn't anything there. That it's just wild howls of laughter. Now. What we're going to see in the next couple paragraphs as people start talking about this is that the people who are there, right, the people in the company of the ring, do leave that open to possibilities. And Amorea, yeah, exactly. They aren't necessarily sure what they're hearing. And there might be various opinions on exactly what it is that they're hearing. Um, and as Almerea says, the narrator is also leaving it to us as readers to choose. If we can't accept, don't like the idea that there are unknown creatures out there in the night whose shrill cries and wild howls of laughter are being heard by the company, we can dismiss it as only a trick of the wind. 
Notice also in the second half of that sentence, the sounds were those of shrill cries and wild howls of laughter. That's what the sounds were. Notice how I think that that is, if we think about um, how positively the narrator could have stated this, that's um, pretty middle of the road, right? Um, it would be stronger just to say, it might have sounded, you know, some people might have thought it was the wind, but they heard shrill cries and wild howls of laughter. Like, that would be a much more positive statement about it. But what he has here is stronger than many other ways that it could be said, right? He doesn't say, for instance, it may have been only a trick of the wind in the cracks and gullies of the rocky wall, but it sounded like shrill cries and wild howls of laughter. He doesn't say it sounded like it. He says the sounds were those of shrill cries and wild howls of laughter. He's still not laying any absolute claim to explain what made the sound. But he is saying the sound, this sound, was that sound. You got the sound of shrill cries and wild howls of laughter on the one hand. And you got the sound that they were hearing. And I'm telling you, those are the same sound. That's what the sound was. Right? I'm not claiming that somebody was crying or laughing. What was causing the sound? You can decide what you think about that. But that's what the sound was. And Wobe, I agree, um, is reporting a felt experience of the sound. That's what they experienced. If you were there, what you too would have heard, you would have heard shrill laughter. And maybe you could convince yourself that it was just the wind. Um, but that's what you would have heard if you had been there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and then the rocks come, just like they came in The Hobbit. Stones began to fall from the mountainside, whistling over their heads or crashing on the path beside them. Every now and again they heard a dull rumble as a great boulder rolled down from hidden heights above. Like the sound, now again, he's, he's not saying, he's not making any claims, the narrator's not making any claims about the source of the sound. He is making a claim about what the sound was, but not about the source of the sound. He's even less direct in suggesting a source of the stones. Stones began to fall. They just, they just started to fall whistling over their heads or crashing on the path beside them. I love the, the verb. Every now and again, they heard a dull rumble as a great boulder rolled down from hidden heights above. The rolling down from hidden heights. Now, that just means they're coming down. I mean, where else would they roll to? Um, and of course, the heights are hidden because it's snowing so hard you can't see them, right? So on the one hand, that's a, a simple an obvious um, uh, a simple and obvious statement, right? Um, but at the same time, 
especially with this same with this idea of the shrill cries and the wild howls of laughter that have been planted, and especially if we retain memories of the stone giants from The Hobbit, it's hard not to imagine that the hidden like that somewhere hidden up above them is something that is rolling down the boulders in their direction. Stones began to fall from the mountainside all around them, some passing right over them, some crashing on the path right beside them. It, again, Wobe, as you were saying before, a, a description of the experience, it feels like they're having rocks chucked at them as well as snow dumped on them. And they're hearing cries on the wind and howls of laughter. Someone is not just shrieking, crying in the wind. Someone is enjoying themselves in what they're doing here. Um, uh, yeah, so, but again, it's very indirect. It's very, it's not just that Tolkien hides the stone giants, right? <clears throat> or, you know, backs down, backs away from the stone giants. It is that he, um, it's that he is so indirect about this whole passage. It really is inviting us. And, and Wobe, I keep coming back to the comment that you just made because um, I think that that's that's really a powerful way to describe this. And, and as you were pointing, as you were implying, I think we've seen him doing this frequently. We saw this same kind of effect with the description of the silence before and with the description of Sam's experience of the 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 uh, genocide of crows, right? Um, instead of telling us how people are feeling, he is describing things in such a way as to help us to enter into the experience of the people who were there, right? Um, and... Um, and Abelard's drunk, I absolutely know that avalanches of snow can carry rocks with them. Absolutely. It, there's, there's every reason to think there are perfectly natural explanations um, for rocks coming, though it doesn't describe the rocks being dislodged by cascades of snow coming down the... Like it's, there's not an avalanche. There's just rocks um, bouncing around. Um, but... Um, but again, we are being invited into a perspective that at least fears that there is a hostile will behind this storm. And that in these moments, we're not just seeing the evidence of it. We can hear them. You can hear the very voice of whatever obviously dangerous and plainly malicious. Unlike those, you know, fun-loving stone giants of the hobbits who are just, of the hobbit who are just having their game. And, you know, the dwarves happen to be, uh, you know, caught in the middle of it. Um, there is something malevolent here. And it is, if it is playing, it is playing with them. It is... Um, you know, sort of 
playing with its food. Um, and again, I love the indirection of this. Nothing is stated about that. In fact, the, like the positive statement that's made is that it, it may only have been a tree. We're offered a naturalistic explanation. We're offered, we are positively offered one to explain the sounds, and we can easily enough think of some to explain the stones. There is nothing that he says that is inconsistent with, it, with an entirely naturalistic explanation of this entire phenomenon. Maybe there's not a hostile will actually directing at them, mocking them, um, mocking them with laughter and with, you know, rocks that almost kill them, but not quite. Um, but we have to kind of make that choice. We can kind of take refuge in that if we want to. But I don't think that that is what the experience of this passage invites. I think we're given an out, but I do think that we are asked to feel in this moment. The shrill cries and the wild howls of laughter are real. That, in any case, is the real experience of what it felt like to be on this mountain pass. Whatever we might think in our comfortable living rooms, right? Remember, that's another kind of um, active reminder that Tolkien liked to give uh, in uh, in The Hobbit, right? Remember when uh, Bilbo's trying to come up with riddles and uh, we're told that, or, you know, when he's trying to guess riddles and we're told that that we probably, you know, being all safe and comfortable and warm can think of the answer right away. But, you know, Bilbo was under a bit more duress and in a bit more discomfort than we were, right? Um, Tolkien does not often draw that kind of explicit attention to the gap, right, between us and what we read. Um, but, um, uh, anyway, yeah. Um, okay, so, um, yeah, all right. Let's go back to the first paragraph before we run out of time completely. Of course, we're going to follow up on this. Right, we're going to get a whole conversation about this, so we will see how the company responds to it. I wanted to look at this itself. Um, there was a reason I split that up between this slide and the next slide, because um, I wanted to look at the description first uh, together, and then look at the response to the description. How, how does he invite us to respond to it on our own first, before he then shows us in words, right, in their words, how they're responding to it. Um, okay. Back to the first one. It's the sound patterns that really were jumping out to me, especially in the first half of this paragraph. While they were halted, the wind died down, and the snow slackened until it almost ceased. They tramped on again. But they had not gone more than a furlong when the storm returned with fresh fury. The wind whistled, and the snow became a blinding blizzard. Hear all that alliteration? Isn't that wonderful? While they were halted, the wind died down. While they were halted, the wind died down. And the snow slackened till it almost ceased. We've got the, the two W's, and then the two D's, and then the three S sounds. Snow slackened, ceased. And then 
the furlong fresh fury, wind whistled and the blinding blizzard, and then in the middle of it, they tramped on again. They tramped on again. One of those simple, unadorned, simple sentences that breaks up those two highly... It is almost like lines of Anglo-Saxon poetry. It doesn't really obey Anglo-Saxon sound rules, I don't think. Not really. Though now that I say that, Matt... Almost. It almost does. Um, let me sum up. The Anglo-Saxon alliterative meter um, has four primary beats, like four stressed syllables. And the general pattern is that you either have one stress in the first... so it's, And it's split in half pretty much. So you've got the first two beats and then the second two beats. And the what the basic most general rule, you can either have one stress on either side, or you have two stresses on one and one stress on the other. Um, and so you can see that there is... So while they were halted, the wind died down. If the w, if you're alliterating on the on the W, right, the wind, the while and the wind are on opposite sides of the sentence like that, kind of balancing it. Um, the snow slackened until it almost ceased. So you've got snow slackened close together, like the two beats on the one half of this cesura, and then the single one ceased on the other half. Um, the same thing with the Fs, right? You've got the furlong by itself in the first half of that third sentence, and then fresh fury together at the end, right? So again, it's not exactly the same pattern, and it's not obeying the sound laws or anything exactly. Um, but we do have not only the use of alliteration, but some gesture at the balance of alliteration within sentences, which I think does recall Old English poetry. Um, yeah, I, I like the transition between W's and D's through the wind died down. Yes, I do too. Um, and I love the transition into the very close alliteration of blinding blizzard, right? BL is quite a striking, uh, it's not a very common consonant cluster uh, in English. I mean, it's not unknown, but it's not like the most frequent one. It's not like ST or something like that. Um, and so blinding blizzard, uh, those two uh, two-syllable BL words right back-to-back -back, uh, are very, very noticeable. Um, and he, he kind of launches into it with that first B. Um, the snow became a blinding blizzard. Um, uh, anyway, yeah, yeah. I think that that's, um, that that's great fun. And notice how that segues into Boromir. Soon even Boromir found it hard to keep going. The hobbits, bent nearly double, toiled along behind the taller folk, but it was plain that they could not go much further if the snow continued. Frodo's feet felt like lead. Back to the alliteration again. Now, notice also how, having established 
the alliteration. He doesn't alliterate as strongly there in those middle sentences, but notice how with Boromir, as I suggested, um, but even continuing in through the next sentence, we're recalling those sounds, those consonantal sounds from earlier in the paragraph. Boromir recalling the became a blinding blizzard, even so Boromir. Um, uh, but then you've got um, the hobbits, the hobbits bent nearly double, um, You've got the, 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 the D and double recalling died down, um, toiled along behind the taller folk. Uh, so you've got the, the two T's and the F recalling the furlong fresh fury of just two sentences before. Uh, and then further again, right? Uh, taller folk, they could get no much further. Um, anyway, there's, there's, um, it doesn't remain as, as dense as it was at the beginning. But then, of course, Frodo's feet felt. We get the three Fs in a row at the beginning of their Pippin was dragging behind, uh, recalling those Ds again. Even Gimli, as stout as any dwarf could be, was grumbling as he trudged. Um, I love the, um, the alliteration of Gimli with grumbling, which is kind of a Gimli thing to do, right? Um... Uh, and I love also the, um, uh, I love the, the, it's not a rhyme, but the, the sort of assonance between grumbling and trudged, uh, that the short U in the middle of those, um, is just in my ear, a very delightful effect grumbling as he trudged. Uh, it gives the whole end of that sentence this sort of muttering quality, right? Um, yeah. Um, why do we hear about Pippin, especially in this scene? Yeah, I don't know. I agree. We don't hear about their marching order very often. Um, but, um, yeah, you're right, Vardendil. You could scan... Frodo's feet felt like lead uh, would be itself a perfect Old English poetic line, wouldn't it? Frodo's feet, says Jura, felt like lead. Um, you wouldn't usually put a caesura between, I don't think you would, between subject and verb like that very often. Like, that would be slightly awkward in an Anglo-Saxon poetic line, but um, but but certainly the shape of it Um is, uh, you know, with Frodo's feet felt lead with like as an unstressed syllable. Um, it, uh, it definitely works very, very symbol, uh, very, very similarly to it. Um, anyway, yeah. So, um, Pippin dragging behind, um, I mean, I don't, know that it like it has a sort of a deep significance. Um, we know that Pippin is the youngest and smallest. Um, we know Frodo's not behind. Frodo is always kind of in the middle, and we know Sam is right with him, and Bill is right with Sam. Um, and so we're getting this image of uh, Pippin, the smallest and youngest of the hobbits, being a sort of increasingly isolated uh, as he falls behind the rest of the group. Pippin becomes a kind of we're given what Frodo feels, and then we get a, a a picture of Pippin, right? We picture Pippin. We feel with Frodo and then picture Pippin uh, in that next sentence, basically. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. And no mention of Legolas. Yes, none at all. None at all. Um, yeah, we'll come back to that. Yeah, no, sorry. The, I just keep coming back to it. The more I, the more I look at it, the the more the more delightful I find that last phrase. Grumbling as he trudged. Um, grumble, of course, is a word. Um, uh, grumble is an almost onomatopoetic word. The word grumble almost sounds like a grumble, right? Um, and uh, and so, and again, just and the word trudge also has that near um, onomatopoetic feeling to it. I mean, the word trudge almost sounds like your footfalls do when you're trudging, right? Um, both the 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 hard and clumsy j, you know, j, j, at the end of the uh, at the end of the syllable, um, and the the sort of you know sloppy not sloppy but kind of uh, mushy tr at the beginning right trudged um, trudged is one of those delightful protracted one syllable word it's a single syllable um, it's not trudged right um, it's a single syllable word but it's a single syllable which kind of drags itself out right trudged uh, it's like a word you can't say fast, right? Exactly. Well, was thinking the same thing, the way that it drags. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. It trudges an awesome word. Uh, tramp also has a similar kind of onomatopoetic thing. It's not, uh, it's trudging is worse, right? And notice that we're tramping at the beginning of the paragraph, but we're trudging by the end of the paragraph. I think that's a downgrade, Right. I think we've uh, we've downgraded from tramping to trudging uh, by the time we get to the bottom of the paragraph. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, I just I love the way that he is. This is such a fun paragraph to illustrate the way that Tolkien plays with the sound of words in order to just sort of create uh, through sound. Again, it's not through this is not something to picture. This is not something that um, uh, that seeing the text on the page helps you in any way. Sometimes seeing the text on a page helps you in verse, for instance. You know, like uh, particular patterns of, of words or, um, uh, you know, line patterns or, or, or rhyming endings or something like that will jump out, will be more visible to your eyes when you see it on the page. This is all about what you hear and what you feel. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, anyway. Um, yeah, I love this. I would try to remember, remember grumbling as he trudged as a wonderful example of how Tolkien can convey a mood just through sort of word choice. And the, this, again, this sort of sound texture that he creates um, from uh, uh, from the sound of his words. Um, yeah. Anyway. Uh, and, and by the way, Tolkien was... He did not believe that every word was intrinsically... Like, the sound of every word 
was intrinsically connected to the meaning of the word. Like he didn't have a sort of a mystic belief in language as a whole like that, but he did believe that good words do, right? That, I mean, he, this was a very controversial belief among philologists. Scientific philologists uh, were sort of like supposed to believe that sound change over time was sort of arbitrary, that there is no, like, objective, true language. Like, there's no one word for a thing which is, like, the true word for that thing, right? That all language is kind of relative and all shifting and evolving around. Um, that was, like, the uh, sort of official doctrine of scientific philology. But Tolkien didn't really believe it, <laughs> I think. Um, and... Uh, I think that he loves to play with words like this, um, that um, to play with words that what I was calling an almost onomatopoetic uh, nature. But it's not just about onomatopoeia. Onomatopoeia, of course, meaning the words which um, which like make the sound that they describe, like crash. Um, But but it's not merely onomatopoeia, right? It's about a word which, in some sense, evokes the thing, and you don't have to know the language even, right? There's just something in the nature of the word which evokes the thing. Um, thank you, Bjarnasona. The idea for this is iconicity. That's that's a good word. I figured there was a word people used about this, and I didn't know it. Um, but uh, in any case, I'm not saying that Tolkien was a diehard believer in this, um, but I think he had leanings in that direction. Um, and there were certainly some words that he thought infelicitous in this way. Like he definitely, he definitely did make some subjective judgments. Like that's a better word for that thing than that one is, for instance. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Wobe says, I don't think it's arbitrary at all. Contingent, yes. Circumstantial, oh yes. Arbitrary, come on now. Right, exactly, exactly. I think uh, had Tolkien been constructing a, um, had Tolkien been constructing an actual academic argument uh, in defense of this concept, I think he, he might have gone in that kind of direction. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, I um, remember especially those of you who were with me at SoCal Moot when we were just talking about his poem, Mythopoeia. Remember his talking about um, signifying this and that by this and that, right? Um, Using any old word to describe any old thing, which is not how it should be done, right? Um, Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, so, uh, anyhow, okay, all right, enough, uh, enough about that, that's my, my, okay, that'll be my last digression of the day. I feel confident because we're about to stop. Okay, yeah, and I think that's all, I'm, I'm, while I'm kind of backing up from the paragraph to make sure I'm not missing anything obvious, the other thing that I would point to, we talked about Pippin, we talked about Frodo, the mention of Boromir here, um, we get Frodo's first-hand feeling. He's the only one um, that we're given this like completely internal 
side grumbling. We hear Gim Gimli grumbling. We see Pippin dragging behind. We sort of, we get something almost internal about Boromir. Even Boromir found it hard to keep going. Um, that's a slightly subjective description of that, but still we get the picture of him toiling, right, as he's trying to move forward th through the snow. But with Frodo, we get his feelings, right? We get, like, this is, here is exactly what Frodo's feet felt like, which is quite different than we get for any of those other characters. Um, and, uh, and the singling out of those four characters, um, even Boromir, who is less tall, he's shorter than Aragorn, but he's broader and beefier than Aragorn, right? Um, so he's the biggest, strongest dude in the party. And even he's having it. So he sort of, we establish that standard at first. Talk about how Frodo feels. See Pippin, the smallest, youngest member of the party, dragging behind right, as he's toiling even to continue it all. And then Gimli is sort of the one in the middle, right? Gimli, like Boromir, is a, is a, a brawny dude. He's a smaller-scale brawny dude, but he's a brawny dude, as stout as any dwarf could be, meaning nothing but good, right? Um, uh, being as stout as any dwarf could be doesn't mean as fat as Bumber or anything like that. Um, clearly meaning... Uh, meaning stout, meaning as strong, right? As, uh, uh, as, as, um, sturdy, right? And he was trudging. He's still moving along, but even he's starting to grumble while he does it. Yes. Stout as meaning hardy. Exactly. Exactly. That's just, that's just how I take that. Not to be a, a, a physical description. Right. Um, Graham, you think uh, Gimli sounds stout and bitter just like your beer? Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Um, yeah, interesting. Oh, fascinating. Wobe is um, uh, giving us, as uh, uh, Bjana Sonner was hinting earlier, um, is uh, pointing to the fact that Grumble has a really interesting etymological history. That's cool. That's cool. Don't have time to pursue that right now, but uh, I recommend that uh, it's um, Etim Online uh, entry for Grumble, Wobe is linking to, which I think would be interesting. Um, but anyhow, okay. Um, I do think he's giving uh, Boromir some character beats to set up his, uh, his upcoming snowplow moment. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. And remember, we got Boromir before. He was the mountaineer. Right. This was Boromir that let's bring wood so we don't die of exposure, maybe. Right. Um, making the quite diplomatic and practical suggestion offered quite humbly uh, uh, and without drawing too much attention to himself. Um, but um, anyway, yes, definitely some setup. And he's going to be the one who's going to respond um, right after this, too. But. That we shall leave for next year, uh, because, of course, next week, Christmas week, I'm going to be out of town, so I won't be here for next week. Um, but uh, we should be back on the 2nd of January um, uh, to celebrate our sixth anniversary, I believe. Um, no, it won't be the second. It'll be the third. 
Won't it? Yes, it'll be the third. It'll be the birthday itself. The very day. The very sixth year anniversary of the first ever um, Exploring the Lord of the Rings class. Uh, so there we go. So ha happy New Year to everybody. Um, and of course, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays uh, uh, for all who celebrate in between. Um, so uh, thanks everybody for that. We're going to do our field trip. Um, but I just want to make sure to remind folks that I won't be around next week. Um, uh, thanks everybody who has joined us for our uh, our book discussion. Valori can't be with us here tonight. I'm going to turn off my display here for a moment while I go through my uh, almost inescapable crashing cycle here. There we go. Okay. Um, yeah. Six years down, 44 to go. That's just exactly it. That's exactly it. So yes, we will be celebrating. We'll be celebrating in... Uh, in a couple weeks. All right. Meantime. Are you bringing us cake, Corey? Here we go for our field trip. So, tonight, we were going to do that instance, right? I wanted to um, see the inside of... Um, I wanted to see the inside of, uh, um, that place, that tomb, that burial site. Sarkvorn? I can run it at level 20? Oh, good. Yeah, I think I would like to do that if I could. Um... I always forget to filter out that quest. Okay. Um, so, as I said, Valoria's not here. Um, Sarkvorn. Yeah, that's just where I wanted to go. Black Tomb. Um, uh, sorry, hang on a second. Am I, is my audio weird? Yes, it is. Sorry, my audio's weird. Hello? Hello, Corey. Sorry, Jude's Fire. Yes, I couldn't hear you. Well, that's we are. fun. I think everyone else is, though, so that's good. Indeed so. Glad you could join me. So we're going to not form up in a raid, right? Because we're going to do the instance? Right. The instance is a six-person, so only six, five others can go with you. So you get to pick. I get to pick? Oh. Yep. I'm, well, I'm... I, obviously you have to pick me. <laughs> right. Beep, 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 beep. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, um, I don't know on what basis to pick. Um uh, right, not hard eligible. Yeah, that's true. Um, well, they would have had to have been here last week or otherwise discovered the instance. Otherwise, they won't let them in. They won't let them in. Right. Right. Um, or you can roll die. I could roll die. Yes, you could. I do. I do. I do. I do have my dice over here. I, but how do we number them? Um, I don't know. Tell you what, I'll roll some numbers. And then you can, like, pick alphabetically or something. <laughs> okay. Okay, that's what's going to happen. I'm going to roll a d12, because I always feel empathy for the neglected d12. It's, like, one of my favorite dice. And only barbarians get to roll it. So we're going to... Uh, so eight, nine, 
10, and 11. I can't even believe I rolled four numbers oh, in wow. a row. That is freaky. Okay, 8, 9, 10, and 11. Um, and uh, so I'm going to... Let's head over there. Wow. Boy, that was really some unusual rolling there. That is uh, definitely, that's, that's almost, that's a Yahtzee, man. I know. I totally rolled Yahtzee. <laughs> the Rides of Grey was just thinking the same thing. You don't, you don't play Yahtzee with D12s, but, you know. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, we may only have six eligible people, but let's, um, I'm well, going to run it on level for you. Yeah. Well, no, I don't want to run it on level for me. Ideally. I'm going to head down. Um, uh, ideally, I want to run it at a low level so that I don't have to actually worry about mobs. True, true. Well, you'll still get attacked by mobs. Well, yeah, but if I'm being attacked by level 20 mobs, I don't have to care. This um, is true. Since uh, Narnian has never gained a level, has not fought anything since the intro area... Um, I think I still have equipped my. I got that. Yeah, my weapon is my level five staff from the intro area. Nice. Now, I still have my original staff equipped. I've never. Um, I still have in my inventory boxes and boxes of stuff I've never opened from my uh, Valar to level him up to one twenty. Um, so yes, this is uh, that's a reflection of the competence of uh, Narnian in battle. So I don't exactly want to do it at level one twenty. Um, so if we could do it low level, that would be perfect because I really just want to sightsee. Sure. Okay, easy peasy lemon squeezy. Now the thing is, anybody who has discovered it can just go in from the instance winder. Okay. All I all I have to do is start up the instance, and then everybody who's in will click travel now. Okay. Well, I want to go there because I want to get the whole like I want to get the okay. whole experience again. Okay. So let's find it again. I have a vague memory of where it is. I'm going around to go up the hill. It's amazing how clean and sharp those Breland ruins are compared to the they ones. They are. Down the backside of uh, yeah from here it just it looks like it's almost a you know a still in use castle over there well technically it is <laughs> i know i should open the boxes aranas i just uh i never have time what would you do with a snowman training dummy anyway you don't find anything well yes that's true, though. I think a snowman training dummy is about a is about um, Narnian speed, as far as opponents are concerned. Yeah, since he got paced by the Bjornings and Vegbar. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm lucky these skeletons aren't roughing me up. Okay. And I'm told that we need to take you into. Am I still um, going in vaguely yeah, the right direction? Um, I think it's up the hill, actually. Did I miss the turn? I thought I might have missed the I turn. I believe you did, sir. Oh, well. It was in this... All right, well. Got to go around and go the other way. But not all the way around. It was... The right-hand turn was sooner? Yep. 
Where yeah, I yeah. am. Okay, right. I didn't go uphill enough. Mm-hmm. This yeah. is the turn that I missed last time, so yeah, it yeah. works. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if you have the game music on the here. That little outcropping of rock is... Okay, here comes the bridge. Oh, yes. Perfect. We made the bridge. I don't have the stream open. Do you have the game music in the background, by chance? Me? Because Bill Champ, yeah, because Bill Champagne wrote some bangers in here. They're really good. Yeah, I do. It's down pretty low. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So I just wanted to remember. Okay. Just wanted to remember. We've got. Oh, that's right. I was comparing it to Rathdenan, right? This is like the mm -hmm. the Rathdenan of Cardolan, which is interesting that it should be a burial ground, given burial ground is like the one thing we have about Cardolan. And there is a graveyard not too far away from here in the southern old forest. Right. Right. Okay. Um... All right, so, oops, I'm not the fellowship leader. I think you got to go in. Uh, yep, I'm working on it. Are you setting the level low? That's uh, my goal, yeah. And it's saying two of the folks in our fellowship are not eligible to run this encounter. Oops. So. Wow. What do you have to do? It's, uh, you have I... to discover it. and. What, by coming here? Yeah. Oh, I see. So get up close to the entrance. Hmm. Let's try this again. Aha. Okay. Before the fall of Cardolan, in the aftermath of the war with Angmar, Here we are. and the great plague that followed, countless dead were laid to rest in mass burials among the stones of a ruined temple of the Edai. Ooh. Its name of old forgotten. I'm not getting the voiceover. I must have, like, turned down my, my audio settings. Just have voiceover up really high. Most unwary or foolhardy ever dared approach It's a speech. But now, it's a long speech. King of Angmar has returned to rouse the Barrow Whites from their slumber and summon forth an ancient. That's an interesting metaphor. Vanished long ago. To rouse the, <clears throat> the Barrow Whites from their slumber. Huh. Okay, all right. Before the fall of Cardolan, in the aftermath of the war with Angmar and the Great Plague that followed, countless dead were laid to rest in mass burials. Oh, mass burials from the plague. Among the stones of a ruined temple. Hmm. So I'm going to be really interested to look at the archaeological evidence of that. Its name long since forgotten, it became known as Sarkvorn, the Black Grave. Nobody dared approach it. Okay, so it's like half Barrow Downs, half Paths of the Dead, then? It's like Paths of the Dead meets Rathdenan. Okay. Sounds like it, yeah. Color me curious. All right, so inside here, we get, is it always raining in Sarkvorn? I do not know. I haven't actually been in here before. Maybe. Okay. It would look like it, given the depth of the water here. Okay. 
Um, and oh, what do we, we have? Spiders? Okay. There's spiders. There's dead lights. More spiders and crawlers. Right. Nice. Um. And there's a a who worn over in the corner. Oh, who worn too, huh? Okay. Um. Okay. The isolated freestanding tombs are not what I expected. Um. You know, I look at this fancy standalone tomb and the word mass grave does not really come to mind it doesn't it seems like um a, a single person's tomb yeah these look like a series of monuments and even this looks like it could be potentially i mean not to say that you couldn't bury a whole bunch of people in there if you wanted to this big tall a one family grave yeah it could be something like a family vault um but again, one could also say, I mean, we've seen smaller tombs than this for single people, uh, especially in Enumina's. Um, they're interesting in the sense that they are, I guess I might as well get out my links so that that can at least be some help. Um, uh, it's interesting in the sense that on the one hand, we get these tombs, which are relatively elaborate, also relatively modern. I mean, clearly, the modern... All of these are the modern Cardolan period. I've not yet seen the abandoned temple. I don't think. And they're relatively not ruined. Um, yeah, like they're in good in. shape. Yeah, they're in good shape. And they're small. Oh, look, heap of bones. Oh, with like a white dude that rises up out of the ground. Um, okay. Um, Do you think the outer wall is actually part of the whole thing, or is there? Are we dealing with like two different layers of time? I, I was wondering about that. It looks very similar to the external walls that we came through. Mm-hmm. The coloring of the stone is a little different from these tombs. I'm gonna get the chubby whites here, huh? Okay. Got some rats and beetles and things. Now these pillars, this is starting to look vaguely temple-like. Are those, they are rounded. Was this just a, was the wall just turning a corner here? Or is this, because I think it looks like it straightens out over here. Yeah, these are all in a row. Oh, and then Kinda they curve like a, again. An amphitheater. Yeah. So, so what, was the temple like this kind of, you know, like colonnade or arcade all around? Um Oh, I can't go this way? There's a lot of tall reeds here, and those are a scenario signature, but still. <laughs> and it's uh, that's where it's hard for sightseeing. Okay, right, yeah, there's the... Yeah, there just there does seem to be just this... Um, this curving colonnade all the way around. Oh, man, I've accidentally completed a deed. Yeah, Narnian's goal is, you know, sightseeing while in pacifist mode. That's, uh... 
Oh man, Narnian has completed a rep deed? Wow. How did you manage that? No idea. Ooh. So, am I not able to go through because this is the edge of the area? Yes, the, there is actually a path between. How big is this area? Is it very small? Uh-oh, I'm frozen. Oh dear. This look like... Oh, oh there we go. My map. Oh, there is no map. Okay, it's just the area map. So that was a bog lurker with a bunch of skulls and bones on its back. Oh, wait, where are you guys? I, mi I missed you. Oh. Oh, oh, here's the temple. Okay, mm -hmm. that's what I'm talking about. This is temple-like. Now, just what I was kind of hoping to see. Now, this is very interesting. This is very interesting because now we're getting the ancient swirly stones. This is old barrow material right here. And the thing that I'm most interested in is going back to the text of that voiceover introduction, if I can scroll mm -hmm. all the way back up to that text. There it is. Um... <clears throat> a ruined temple of the Edain, specifically, they mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, which I was not taking for granted. As, for instance, the... Um, it's not obvious that the Brelanders are Edain, necessarily. Um, and... Uh, but these people, the... People with the curly Q decorations on the stones that we've seen in so many places were he dying? Really? That's kind of news to me, actually. That's kind of that's kind of mind blowing news, actually. In Weren't its way. the Barrow Whites uh, in the Barrow Downs he dying? Well, yes, but those were but those that were were later. That is, we know that people from Cardolan were buried there. Um, as, you know, we were told, for instance, in uh, that, you know, Tolkien mentioned that the uh, you know, the last prince of Cardolan was buried in the Great Barrow where, you know, the hobbits were imprisoned. Um, so we know that some of the people of Cardolan were buried there also, but um, the suggestions of the ruins there in the Barrow Downs are that the people of Cardolan were reusing you know, barrows and constructions of a far older um, burying ground, a far older group of group of folks. But okay, so we had the the outer tomb courtyard thing with its arched colonnade surrounding it. Um, okay. And right, the piles of bones that we were seeing down there were supposed to be the mass grave from the Great Plague. Um, I think Guerrendis is referring to um, a thing in the landscape further south from where we were. Further south, but in here. No, I am. I believe it's actually outside. Oh, outside in the because yeah, it mentioned the, the, the. Okay, all right. Now this. This certainly looks like the Barrow Downs. Look at those arched ceilings. That's interesting. We haven't seen that. I'm thinking of the inside of the Barrows. I'm thinking of, like, uh, put the places in Dunland that were similar mm -hmm. to this. They and Enidwyth. Like, they look like a spine, the, the way the, 
the stones yeah, alternate. Yeah. That's kind of creepy. It is a kind of spine rib cage uh, thing here. Okay. Ooh, a new sculpture. Okay. Look, they barely even got up to their knees in the ground before they all died again. Um, oh, man. <laughs> See me bleeding right there? That was kind of... I. That's a, a little more explicit than I'm used to seeing there. That's interesting. Is that a new effect? The blood spurting? <laughs> it might be, yeah. I never noticed that before. <laughs> anyway. It's just in, in the carvings here. I mean, we've got, like, looks like a brazier, maybe? And then there's, like, I don't know, dragons or something with wings at the top? Yeah, above the above the mm -hmm, thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the eyes may be amber or some sort of jewel that would glow in any kind of light? Of this statue, yes. Yes. Um, and he's carrying... Yeah. This looks like a kingly figure carrying a, a scepter, scepter. Yeah, of some kind. And the scepter is interesting um, from an Edain perspective. Um, not exactly the scepter of a Numinous there. Well, he's definitely not Numenorean because he's got a very large beard here. That's true. That's true, though. Uh, I mean, I guess this is new enough that this is post-nature of Middle-earth, but um, they've That's already kind really of committed cute. themselves to a bearded aesthetic for the uh, Numenorean figures in The Lord of the Rings. Possibly. Um, What's the, the little curly cue on the right like on our right, but their left, their left foot. Is it like a rope or something? Oh, like winding around down there? Yeah. It doesn't look like a piece of a robe or. It's an odd um, effect like a with the skull chief. there. Um, the skull, of course, looks so much newer and sharper mm -hmm. than the rest of the image. I almost want to like, be like, hey, could you move that skull, which is clearly not original? Um, like that skull looks like it was set there after the fact. Um, is it obscuring something? something? Like it, it looks like he could be holding a snake or something in his left hand, and possibly, you know, the snake is winding. Down, but the snake's head would be right under that skull. Yeah. Maybe it's like Beetlejuice, where the snake would come out of the skull and go back in. Uh, it's. You can't rule it out. A lot of these decorative elements, like this rod with the like curly Q T up at the top, and the little three curly Q set at the bottom, we've seen this shape in several other places before. What about I? I think those the the definition of the like the ones on the two columns are very different than the two dragons at the top, and I'm not even sure what things are in the arch right above the figure's head. Yeah. They, they, they look like sharper, like claws, more thinly maybe, drawn. Or, yeah. They look like clawed hands, perhaps, embracing the top, you know, on the on the, on the the top, and then the, the dragon heads up above. I agree they look like they could be. I mean, they, the dragons are certainly, dragon heads certainly have a finer level of detail than we see in other places. Like if you see the sort of secondary 
like the sort of the finer detail lines around the teeth and stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're definitely made with a smaller chisel. Yes. Yeah, and we just don't see the same thing in other places there. It could well be done um, at a different period than the carving of the stone. That could, you know, many even of the separate carvings on these pillars could have been done at separate, at different points. Maybe over time, over hundreds of years, they developed finer and finer tools. Right. Okay, we do get an internal map for this place, I guess. Okay, that's not a door, that's just a blockage. All right. Okay. All right, let's keep looking. All right. Okay, we've seen this helmet and shield motif. That looks so much newer. The kind of in inlaid bronze mm -hmm. thing that we're getting here looks so much newer than the the other carvings. Like, here's the same set of carvings around an urn this time. Yeah, the Greek urn. Yeah, the Greek which, wannabe urn. Right, which we've so, seen. Would this also. be a Rohiric? Because it's some dude on a horse with a spear? Well, it, 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 we've seen these in the old barrows in Rohan. As if they were maybe not Rohiric, but Dunlending, like before the Rohirrim arrived. Um, you know, the Dunlendings, the people of Bree, um, these are like the older cultures, you know, that have been in this area for longer, in these areas for longer. Um, Is this a mummy or a body over here? Uh, yeah. Actually, there's one over here, too. Yeah, looks like. There he is. Um, with, uh, all right, there he is. Helmets, yeah. His um, bracelets, like a little red gemstone on them, and at least the one over here, and his arms folded across his chest. Oh, yeah, we see this guy from the other side here. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, right, I see the gems. So definitely not... Um, not the poor. Right. Buried in buried in armor and rich and bejeweled armor. Mm-hmm. Okay, we've got decapitated bodies. Hmm, we've got rough stone and floor and ceiling and then block cut stonework and then Whatever craziness was going on here. Block cut stonework that's all cockamamie and broken down now. Who are we fighting here? More dead folks? Yep. Okay. And watch out, those uh, puddles are kind of nasty. Yeah. A little bit gnarly in through there. There's nothing there. Oh, it's just a dude in a room. Looks like the second boss. Who's the, who is the first boss? Lilliput? No. Uh, the Lil first boss was the um, the lo the bog lurker with the skulls on the back. Oh, right. I missed that one. Who's this person? Oh, I thought he was wearing sunglasses, but no. He's got a dog. Wait, the dog, the lady in the dog statue. Yeah. She doesn't have the, the thing. Will not be a part of your story. 
It will be the end. Okay. You've got. I'm looking for other. Hey, I'm looking for devices on your clothing. Try not to attack her. Just try not to kill her if you can. I'm. I'm just hanging out here so she can attack me all she like. Okay. Yeah, she's got almost. She's got very little that's distinct with those eyes are a little freaky. Hi. Um. Yeah, pay attention to me so you can look right at me. That's okay. Okay, interesting. Her, um... Bleed. Urns emerged from the earth? Well, I didn't see that coming. Yeah, they're glowing in, around the room. Finally. Okay. Yeah, she had almost no devices or images on her clothing. Well, she seems to be happy. She finally has freedom. And her little dog, too. What are the urn? What what were the urns interested in? Huh. Uh, okay. Still um. some some dragons on the doors here. I've, we've seen them in Rohan for sure. Oh yeah, those. I think those are like wolves. They got wings. Which ones? Maybe we're looking at different things. I'm looking at wolf heads over the door that I'm next to here. Okay, yeah. I'm actually looking at the doors along the sides of the chamber. Oh, yes, those. Yes, yeah, the dragon doors, yeah. Yep. Um. Yeah. Yeah, and I was pretty convinced before that these two, that we're seeing two different historical layers here, at least two, right? The oldest one of which is the Curly Q Standing Stones, and then the Dragon Doors and this uh, Horned Helmet Spear combo thing uh, on the wall. Um, with the Pompadour. Yeah, with the Pompadour, exactly. That, um, that, that is a later thing. You can still see how the curly cues are still kind of worked into like the reg the legs of the dragons and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. Um Yeah, yeah. So um So I've got a big honking goblet in a bowl. Yeah. I got a little a little a little grail going on here with this dude. That's an ent size bowl. But yeah, I think um we see here, as in other places, two or perhaps three different historical periods. I rather suspect the urns of being an even later period. I mean, if you look at those up top there, mm -hmm. the two statues with the urn in between, the urn looks really strikingly different from... Yeah, definitely different, less less wear and tear on it for sure. Yeah, it looks newer, It look, it's, a, it's a different style... Yeah. Interesting that we got like wolf heads on the, the the lintel here. Yeah, that's what I was. That's the one I was looking at there. Again, those are familiar. As is this face door. on the door. Ooh. Mm -hmm. Okay. Hello. Ooh. So who's this dude? I don't know. Will he? Okay. Nobody go forward because I want to look around before we talk to him. Tell me if he starts talking or something. Look at these little, look at the little, little mini men here. Like the little, 
right? The little uh, hinge up above the arches. That's kind of it's kind of fun. They look almost like race car spoilers, but probably a different effect. This is the blue stone from Angmar. These are, oh, there's Angmarum stuff here. See the sharp pointy bits going up we, to the we ceiling. We got fish hooks. Columns. We do giant fish hooks. Look at that. Yes, this indeed. This is that weird blue stippled stone that we saw up in Angmar. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Oh, man. Yeah, that's new Angmarim stuff. Okay, so this shows then now... So this has been sort of invested, right? Um, mm -hmm. Invested by Angmarim sorcery. We got the blue flames, another little classic Angmarim In the darkest depths of Sarkvorn, we discover Hithringor... What? In the guise of Prince Amondir. Okay. Okay, he's got green flames. Sorry, I was just looking at what was I looking at? Oh, yeah, I was looking at the carving on this. Oh, it's a it's a it's a dark mark kind of skull and snake thing. Yeah. See, and notice what looks like a hand holding the bottom of the snake again. Yeah. That's probably the same image that we uh, are seeing on the thing. I think he was holding a snake in his left you hand. You called it. Snake right so. there. I think so. That's not proof, but it's pretty suggestive. Okay, so now we've got the... This room... Man, is this room entirely new construction? Do we see any evidence... Uh, after the entryway, in the entryway we can see the old lair with the old statue and the and the curly cues on the on the keystones above the door. Inside there, it all looks. Oh wait, there is a symbol here. Another symbol. Right here on the wall. Oh, whoa, well, yeah, that's that's almost like Angmarim graffiti, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we got uh, catacombs of skulls filling up all these spaces. Oh, right. That's very Angmar. Yeah. Well, now, I say that that's new Angmar, but it's not like they're like, you know what, what we need to do is we need to bring in 10,000 skulls and retrofit this room in the Angmarim style. Like, that's unlikely to have happened. Well, this is the Black Grave, so wouldn't this be probably the skulls of people who died in the plague? Well, you'd think... They would have had the raw materials had they wanted to create this from scratch. If they're like, we want spooky, magical, evil temple center here. Um, oh man, it's super late. All right. Well, this is the the final boss. So this, this is, is the, the last final party. boss. Yeah. Huh. Well, that's a mystery. Sorry, I want to look up to the ceiling. Man, look at that ceiling. Nothing like this ceiling anywhere else. This really looks like this whole thing is much newer construction. Not necessarily super recent construction. Huh. Yeah, this big arch as well. You arrive. All right, last we arrive. Hi, who are you again? You're somebody who's Seeing looking like somebody else? That awaits those who defy me. Yeah, okay, but the question is, what do you look like? Uh, oh, come on! That was rude. Um, Once I served the ordainer, right? But no longer. You too have very little 
about you, I can graphically speak it. You do have a little circlet around your head, which is interesting. It's got pointed ears. Oh, yeah, I didn't even notice that. Well, you know, mildly, kind of gently pointed. Almost looks like he's wearing cosplaying falsies, actually. Like, or like the musician Voltaire who had his ears surgically. Oh, yeah. I don't know, it almost looks like his ears are rounded, but not quite, I don't know. They will all remember me. They will all remember me. Who are you again? Wait, hang on a second, what's that on your arm? Oh, it's just armor. I thought that was a symbol. Okay, and your sword is like kind of black and intimidating, but again, I don't see any symbols on it. I will sit in judgment evermore. The kingdom of the dead awaits you. The kingdom of the dead awaits me? The gray fear, huh? Boy, it just, it really looks like the iron crown has just been newly carven on this old altar here. I see darkness within you. Oh, he hit me with something. You see darkness within me? Well, that's rude. Huh. Thank you. Oh, there he goes. No, he's not quite dead yet. Oh! I will not what were those tumbleweeds? No, it was... Not yet. You will not abandon this vessel. Huh. Oh, so, those are essences of fear. Oh, were those little fear puffs mm -hmm. that went out? Yeah, the... Okay. Okay, back. Oh, he's got a headache. Oh, dear. Oh, more tumbleweeds of death. I love how his eyes float up above. That's really cool. So you can see how his, how those glowing eyes are the evidence of the spirit investing the vessel. Oh, yeah, I wonder what the chalice is for, too. Oh, here he goes. Enough. You shall be mine. Oh. Oh, hello. <laughs> oh, cool. Look at him. Rise. Yeah. Rise, my subjects. Die, my subjects. Okay, so he's got really detailed armor for a ghost. The dead obey me. I will feast upon your fear. Oh, come on, will you? I see darkness within you. What is this? doesn't got a sash on him. Yeah. No, my lord. You cannot summon me. No! Hey, we kicked him. <laughs> I love the sinking down into the ground. You can't summon me, huh? 
Oh, and then, oh, it looks like we found the Ark of the Covenant, too. Well, it was being kept by top men. Yeah. Spear across the top. The two wolf heads. Huh. Ooh, I got a map table. You got a bath a, table? A map table. A map table. Okay, gotcha. Basically a map of, the in-game map of Cardolan on a table. I see. Level 20 drinking. <laughs> okay. So, so here's my thought. Here's my final analysis. My final analysis is this. We saw the old tomb, which has at least three different layers historically within it. The most ancient, the slightly newer with the Gryffindors and the, uh, and the, uh, the Pompadour helmet carvings. And then the newest ones with the urns. And then we have the intrusion by the um, uh, uh, by the the people of Cardolan, right? Uh, so the people of Cardolan come in and they don't touch the outer parts of the temple. We didn't see any evidence of their architecture out there. Um, but then they come in here and they build the blue stonework. So I think maybe the people of Cardolan built this, which is much nicer stonework. Look, look at the tiles in the ceiling. Like I think the people of Cardolan mm -hmm. did that. Um, even maybe the altar itself. And then the people, and then the Angmarim come later on. And they're like, the okay, let's, let's do the fish hooks, right? Let's do the big evil magic metal totem statue things. Um, they erect the multicolor flames. They graffiti the old... I mean, look at the difference between the carving of mm -hmm. this half-moon thing and the carving of the crown, right? Two different styles. Two different styles, two very different periods of time. So, again, I think that that's... The crown is obviously much later. Um, so they've just... They've basically come in and re... Um, redecorated. Presumably they're responsible for this uh, iron crown decorations around the bottom of the pillars mm -hmm. and things. They may or may not be responsible for all the skulls in the walls. That's very Angmarim, but it might just have made them feel at home, potentially. Certainly, as you say, the skulls would have been available from the plague, but... Um, okay. Anyway. It seems to be... a. Uh some sort of uh, shaft up to give the light above the the altar here. Oh, yeah. I didn't even notice that. that. Yeah, the light, shaft of light that you're standing in right here, which I was taking as just a, you know, dramatic spotlight on the boss. But, um, yeah, okay. Cool. Yeah, no, I think I think that's probably what we're looking at here. Of yeah, course, I didn't really follow the plot of the instance because we didn't do this in the context of anything else. Um, you probably should will want to take one of your characters to do the story yeah. of these two zones because you also get to go see the uh, the ring forges in their pristine state. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I we definitely I'll definitely want to do that at some point or other. Um, but yeah, 
Yeah, I agree. The altar seems to be a repurposed tomb. Notice the structure is exactly the same as that family tomb we were looking at outside. Mm-hmm. Um, but sort of corroded differently with whatever this blue growth is. Right? Well, uh, the blue stone is Agnorim stone, so they would have had to quarried it up there and, and hauled it down here. Unless the blue that we're seeing is actually lichen and not part of the stone itself. Okay, I, I can see that, but it does seem more like a, a stone in, embedded than lichen. Lichen tends to be great. Agreed, it's possible. I'm just mm-hmm. speculating possibilities. It's, yep, absolutely. I can see either way as well. Yeah. I also see some lichen up here. Is that just something else? Right, yep, yep. All right. Well, we should probably leave it here. I'm super late, uh, super late tonight. So we should, we should, we'll end here at the corpse of what's his name. Um, Who is Amundir? We need to know the answer to this question. Yeah, well, presumably we'll figure that out later on. But anyhow, sorry, everyone, for being late. But thanks uh, for joining me. This was a fun investigation, tomb investigation here tonight. Um, and uh, next week we will continue... Oops, that's not at all what I meant to do. Uh, show the map of Cardoan. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, we'll continue down through Tirngorthad towards Sarnford, I think. See what we can see as we continue to head south here. Man, so much. Okay, very good. Thanks, everybody. Uh, have a Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Holidays to everybody, and we'll see folks again in on Tolkien's birthday. Thanks, everybody. Good night. <laughs>